Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. All right. Um, now, I was telling you beforehand, this might be a different topic for another day, or uh, this might be a mini pre-topic topic for another day. Okay. Um, I tend to try to avoid trailers, mm-hmm. but if I'm honest, I am more likely to watch a trailer online if there's a Red Band version of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that says about me just wanting to see... I don't know what I want to see. Violence or well, do you cuss think, words or... Do you think that you... That a Red Band trailer might be a little truer to what a film might actually be? I think that might have been true at one time. Okay. But I think it... Not only that Red Band trailers are maybe more accepted. Mm-hmm. It's just a market... Just like the unrated edition on DVD. Right. It's the same... They just put the crudest shit in the Red Band trailer. Yeah. It's, but... Yeah. I still fall for it sometimes. Okay. Which is why I watched recently the red band trailer for the upcoming uh tim and eric's billion dollar movie Mm -hmm. um i have also recently watched it yeah just now Mm -hmm. um now i am a fan of tim and eric particularly their first three seasons of their show there were five seasons of tim and eric awesome show great job um and the last the last one in particular they kind of fell into self-parody a little bit um but I am, based on my uh, history of liking their stuff, mm-hmm. and based on that trailer, I am looking forward to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> based on what I've been reading on Twitter, a lot of our fellow internet like film sort of uh, bloggers and writers and podcasters are not. They're not looking forward to no, it. No, they're not fans. They are, like you, not fans of Tim and Eric. Okay. Um, and I w- I, and I'm I'm wondering now, based on the conversation you and I just had off mic, um, that this could or could not be the case. But it made me think of: Have you ever gone to Rotten Tomatoes? No. And looked. I'm uh, sorry. What? Or maybe you remember from the time. But just go to Rotten Tomatoes and look up what had American Summer, mm, okay. which is only to. Uh, 11 years old, 10 years old? Did it come out in 2000, 2001? 2001. 2001, yeah. Yeah, so it's only 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that time has come to be, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's viewed as a seminal piece of American uh, film com- comedy film. Boy, I think you might be overstating a little bit. I think really? there's, I think there's probably entire groups of people that have not, that have not seen it. And and maybe and might not even be aware of it. I, but, we're but not talking I, about like Office Space or Big Lebowski. But I'm talking about it's a, it's a, almost seen as a uh, a turning point, a milestone within film comedy. It doesn't have to be for everyone, but I'm saying within the genre okay. or within the 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 array or whatever of film mm-hmm. comedy films, uh, there is. Um, it's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You you can you can track it back. It's a it's a breaking point. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what has come to be seen as funny, I think, in the decade since, uh, at least by those um, the more esoteric, mm-hmm. like people, comedy nerds like mm-hmm. us. Um, when Hard American Summer is a big. Uh, a big turning point, a big milestone. But do you think? Do you think it turn? Do you think certain certain aspects of comedy? Do you think it changed as a function of that film, 
or was that film almost a almost I don't know like that it was representative of what was going to be happening? Yeah, it, it was a coming together of. I mean, if you look at who's in the movie, you know, Amy Poehler and right. uh, Paul Rudd, uh, Paul, Paul Rudd, Elizabeth Banks, yeah. uh, you know, people who, and also people like Gene Garofalo and uh, other people who had been already up, been a part of the '90s comedy scene, sort yeah. of coming together and well, like ken marino i mean various yeah state people yeah yeah um michael ian black yeah we could we could name them all day um so yeah i don't know that it necessarily changed because of that but that is sort of like the uh i keep using the word milestone because my vocabulary has failed me um but it is the it's a it, you can see it all coming together from there okay in any in any case you and i both think it's a very funny film yes and also i think uh, maybe i should have asked you this beforehand um i think it's a well-made film uh yes i would say so okay good because it it looks amateurish yeah i guess it is on it's pretty scattershot from a from a filmmaking and storytelling standpoint but of course it's not it's not trying to be. I think it's intentionally. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's intentionally structured that way. That's yeah, it's a, not trying to be a traditional narrative or yeah. anything. Yeah, uh, and and part of the look is because it was made for so so cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in any case, I think to it seems my pulse of people our age, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who were just beginning or just about to begin their twenties when mm-hmm. this movie came out ten years later now. Uh, is generally considered a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a very important one, but maybe I was overstating the case and at least saying something wasn't important for this. Now, for all I know, um, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie is going to be terrible when it comes out. Like I said, I didn't like the fifth season, and that was the most recent thing. So well, I was, I was going to ask, actually, real quick, because you said that the fifth season was almost self-parody, yeah. but the way you've described it to to me, it sounds more pandering than self-parody, which is the... St- and, of course, this is only based on what yeah, David I don't, said. I didn't mean to say that it was intentional self-parody. Okay, all right. They, they became um, an echo of themselves. And to me, and this is based entirely on what you've said and what Tim and Eric is culturally, uh-huh. it almost seems like making a movie would be that times 10 because now it's like get ready you thought the stuff in the show was crazy yeah now we're going to be even more us get yeah. ready america and i would say you know i'm a cynic <clears throat> i would say that's the most likely case okay i'm i most likely won't like the movie even but, though i am like i said looking forward to it it's the same thing that happened doesn't with have the a sp- aqua teen movie oh okay um that i was looking forward to it despite the fact that by the time the movie had come out the show had already fallen in quality mm-hmm but I was hoping it would be like moving to a new medium would allow, would reinvigorate them and they'd be doing the crazy shit they did for the first three seasons mm-hmm. of Aquatine instead of just what they came to do, which is endlessly recycling the guest characters that the stoner audience loved to see. And that's exactly what the movie was. It was just every, you know, uh, just every like recurring character they could that they could cram in from the show they put into the Aquatine Hunger Force. Sounds to me like it was a good good thing that I turned right instead of left when <laughs> you and I were going to go see the movie and I missed it. Yeah, and you ended up uh you ended up you, you could you you were almost in a bad part of town I think by the time you like yeah. realized you had made the wrong turn. Yeah. Um anyway, but what I, but what I wanted to use as a leaping off point for um 
<coughs> is the idea that you and I are both film lovers and comedy lovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like things like What Had American Summer are not appreciated in their own time by critics. Critics maybe... Uh, film critics don't necessarily get comedy because I think sometimes a comedy is it's comedic before it's a film and that's more important well I'd say that's I'd say that's right and Which is I, why I, this is a sort of little interjection here um, I actually think that from a construction standpoint, The Hangover 2 is a better film than The Hangover, mm-hmm. but it forgot to be funny. <laughs> like, oh, okay. There's almost nothing funny in it. That's kind of the problem. Hmm. Uh, anyway. Well, I think there are some I think there are some critics that, you know, I, I realize that I, I bring up uh, Ebert a lot, but he is somebody that, from a, from a comedic standpoint, and he's somebody, by the way, <clears throat> who did not like White Hot American Summer, but for the most part when it comes to comedy he is often willing to go along with what makes with what makes him laugh he doesn't necessarily care if it's a great film mm-hmm. like he will be very clear this made me laugh that's how he wound up giving the the uh, american remake of uh, what is it not death at a funeral is that what it was yeah why he wound up giving that, which everyone said was a bad movie, he wound up giving that like three, maybe even three and a half stars based on this made me laugh consistently. You know, he and and I think Siskel, when it came to Dumb and Dumber, There's Something About Mary, they were always saying these are great movies, yeah. uh, which is to say these are great comedies because first and foremost, they made us laugh and they were shameless about doing so. And... um but of course, as I said, he wasn't a big fan of Wet Hot American Summer, and so you you never know what a critic's going to like and and not like. But but yes, by and large, uh, and we've talked about this on the show with other with with comedians that comedy as a as a film genre is often not appreciated because, I mean, when you think about it, how eh, I was about to bring up Airplane, but some of that production value is pretty solid. Um, but when you're throwing everything at the screen just seeing what what works mm-hmm. you're probably not that interested in basic construction and i think some people can't get out of that critical mindset i'm sure i'm sure there are moments when i can't either uh they can't get out of it enough to appreciate oh they're just trying to make me laugh um and as such they might recognize that, well, I'm not laughing, and maybe it's because they've not, they're not at all in a position to laugh uh, mentally. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard to know what the reason is because that's purely hearsay on my part because it'd be easy for me to be like, oh, you, you critics, you didn't like dirty work because you expected to be this thing over here. It's just trying to be a comedy. But then in their review, they'll say, well, I didn't laugh. Uh-huh. And so it's like, well, now I don't know why they didn't laugh. Yeah, I can hypothesize and say that they didn't let they didn't let themselves laugh, but who knows? And there and there's plenty of oppor- I'm sure there's plenty of times when you know there have been comedies that everyone loves, and I'm like, ah, but that sucks. It's not a it's not a good movie, and it didn't make me laugh. You know, yeah. So I don't want to be overly judgmental of other critics. Okay, I'm I guess maybe more okay with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just looked up while you're talking um, uh, Anchorman, which is, I think, the next sort of seminal American. Now that I would comedy. say is seminal, yes. Um, and also, 
like Wet Hot American Summer, something I would consider high art. Uh, it's at sixty six percent in Rotten Tomatoes, which okay. is a little uh, I, almost. It might be twice that I didn't look up Wet Hot American Summer just mm-hmm. now, but I think that's twice what Amer- Wet Hot American Summer is. But still, sixty six percent is a that's a D, I guess, and that's not yeah. a good. It's not a good grade. Um, I'd be interested in knowing what the highest rated comedy, like just pure comedy, uh-huh. is yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's uh, probably it's probably Woody Allen something. something yeah, some for smart people. Uh, I guess so. Small time crooks. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it is. Um, and maybe it's the kids are all right. Um, <laughs> I guess so. That thing was a laugh riot. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite comedies of last year, actually. Anyway, um, I, I guess I, I, this is why this isn't the full topic because we're already running out of things to say about it. But I just wanted to put out there why it seems like sometimes uh, critics are behind the curve on comedy. And I also wanted to make, point out that I brought this up <coughs> – by way of Tim and Eric, because that's what got me thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I again want to say that uh, there's every chance this movie could be terrible, like the Aqua Teen movie was. Or and- Tenacious D, Pick of Destiny. Something that had a cult following, was gone for a while, uh-huh. and then comes back, and, but then in the process of coming back, is so pandery yeah. that it's like, this is what they want. Here you go. Here you go. And that's actually something that I kind of... Well, this is not a perfect uh, uh, equivalency because uh, The Simpsons, the show was still on when The Simpsons movie came out. But uh, The Simpsons movie could have just been like, here we go. Here comes the, we're going to give you everything that you love about the show, but it's bigger. But actually, they had their own story. Like, Mm -hmm. that movie had its own story, much like uh, Beavis and Butthead to America. Um, And so, I don't know, but something like, like Tim and Eric, which had a, very specific just a cult audience it mm-hmm. wasn't widely accepted i feel like when it comes back it'll come back like if you'll pardon the phrase in all its glory yeah well and I, part of the reason i'm excited by the trailer is because um for the most part it seems to be original stuff mm-hmm. but again that you're only seeing two and a half minutes of it and you can see like james qual and some of like the real life weirdos not to be mean but the people they would put in their tv show Mm -hmm. you know uh that would cause and still continue to cause endless debates about whether or not it's exploitative uh and i still am not sure how i feel about it uh but just the fact that they're in the trailer makes me think like fuck that for all i know that could be a much bigger part of the movie than it is the trailer and that would bother me well and the very fact that jeff goldblum is in it uh-huh. Um, and don't be wrong what i've seen of jeff goldblum on tim and eric is delightful yeah the I, Je- think, jeff I think goldblum and group which I didn't see that, but I saw the right. other thing, which I yeah. c- and I still can't remember the name of it, but he, where it's a medicine where you don't have to <laughs> yes. wait. That's a great, yeah. But uh, but in this trailer, if you if, for those of you who haven't seen it, he's Chef, Chef Chef Goldblum. Yeah, and so um, and that and that seems funny, but it's almost like it's almost like his presence in it is just like we've got Goldblum too. He came back for the movie. It's just like find new celebrities. Yeah, you know, and also don't, like. They got Robert Loggia, I like that. Yeah, and that's I do like Robert Loggia or Loggia. Um, uh, what I don't like is that like Will Ferrell and John C. Riley and Zach Galifianakis, like yeah, they're all stars, but they're all in on the joke. And at this point, so yeah. is Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Whereas, you know, when they would do the show, uh, they would have like 
Ray Wise and Edward Herman and like people you wouldn't see coming. Yeah. And it would be, it ended up being great because like, oh, what, what good sports? And they're all like really funny, but they're not yeah. like hip. <coughs> yeah. You know? And so, um, yeah, I'm glad to see Robert Loggia in there. Something like that is much more encouraging to me than seeing a John C. Riley or a uh, Jeff Goldblum or a Zach Galifianakis. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, just someone who. You assume they're in on the joke, but there's always the possibility they're not. <laughs> I don't know. That's always exciting yeah. to me. All right. Um, now, David, would you say? Don't even try. I don't. Think I think I can. Any do, way to get? I think right. I could do it. Everybody, stand back. Tyler is going to attempt the most difficult transition in the history of the show. Would you say that when people, that Tim and Eric fans, when they go to see the movie, it won't matter? If it's good or bad, they are going to love it simply because it harkens back to even a few years ago, and they're very sentimental about it. And it's a part; it's, it shaped who they are, maybe as comedy fans. And no matter how good or bad the movie is, they will embrace it out of a sense of sentimentality. Um, I don't know. I don't care. But it's funny you should bring up sentimentality. That wasn't bad, right? <laughs> no, that wasn't bad. All right, uh, but it did ask me a question that had nothing to do with the topic. I used the word so you, sentimentality. Yeah, that's all you did was use the word sentimentality twice. But I used it organically within what we were talking that's about. That's true. That's true. All right. Um, I was watching I, I recently. Um, You're a jerk. Yeah, I know. Uh, I was at a. Uh, I was at a, a screening. Like sometimes I get to see movies before they come out. It's like a press thing. Uh, you are going to kill this joke. I don't. You like are it. going to. I don't like to talk joke. about it on the show. Is all I'm saying. Um, but I was at one of you these. You are daring <laughs> people not to go to the site now. <laughs> no, I'm not. You shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Everyone should go to the site. They are. The website is where it's at. It sure is. Much um, more than this show now. <laughs> and it's for reasons of my bad transitions and your <laughs> constant press screening jokes. Uh, anyway, I was at one of these screenings for uh, Luc Besson's The Lady. Um which is the, uh, I guess, a biopic of Aung San Suu Kyi, who's a Burmese democracy activist who spent, um, uh, you know, a decade under house arrest in in Burma, um, and it's the story of her uh, English husband, uh, who's a professor, I think, at Oxford, uh, played, and he's played by he's played by David Thewlis. Aung San Suu Kyi is played by uh, Michelle Yeoh. Um, and I was watching the movie, and I was not enjoying it. There's a review up on the site. You can read all the ways I didn't enjoy it. Um, and I found myself thinking, like, this is just a series of... This is just a re- just uh, reporting the facts. That's kind of all this movie is doing. Um, and so... When there would be a big moment where the characters had to react emotionally to something, mm. it wasn't working because we had no investment in their emotional lives. They were just characters in this historical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found myself thinking this movie could sure use a dose of sentimentality. Okay. And so that got me thinking about just the connotation of the word sentimentality. Among you know, uh, you know the hip young uh, Turks like you and me, uh, the cynics, the jaded ones. I'm not that cynical. We're too cool for school, is what I'm saying. Yeah, all right. 
Uh, sentimentality is a, a thing you say about a movie you don't like. You say, yeah, uh, sentimental. Can I get a, uh, not totally off topic, okay. but only slightly? It's kind. Isn't it a little weird that you mentioned sentimentality or sentimental is is kind of a derisive term now, uh-huh. whereas as is uh, earnest. Uh-huh. Like, oh, that movie sure was earnest. And it's like, yeah, okay. I think well, what, I, I like, earn, I respond well to earnestness. I think I became aware of it as a negative, as a mostly negative term when, okay, I'll be honest, I was described as, uh, like, Tyler's weedy earnestness uh-huh. I, when I was on uh, the Slash film cast. Um <laughs> Dave said it to me. That's not true. Uh, it was it was uh, said in the comments section when I was on talking about Red State, and it said, uh, "Now this guy, th- this commenter came on and was anonymous, and he was he was bashing Dave for being so complimentary of Dan Trackenberg, and then talked about how bad a guest I was, and so it's like this guy was just an asshole in general. So it doesn't yeah, that really poor guy. I right? What's going on in his life? It doesn't like that's the thing. It doesn't. Some comments bother me. His really didn't because just like this guy's just unhappy. <laughs> um, but but it did get me thinking about: Am I just too earnest? And I'm like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, yeah. why is that bad? Does it mean that I was expressing my opinions in a in an honest way? Like, I I actually took the time to look up earnest uh-huh. to see like. Is there another definition that is inherently negative? No, there isn't. Yeah. And so the question, to me, like, it, it's much the same way. Like, how I, did sentimental and how did earnest, and I think the, the two actually thing, go together. I, I think, yeah, I think they do go together because I think there's a certain brand of uh, maybe emotionally arrested, immature young people who are not comfortable enough in their own skin to allow themselves to feel full emotions mm-hmm. and so they are uh knee-jerk cynics or appreciate things ir- ironically right and so because you are a fully formed adult who is comfortable in his own uh skin and well, let's not go too far <laughs> <laughs> uh you have no problem being earnest uh i guess so yeah and if i and it's one of those things like Especially with a film like Red State, where because I had been so negative about Kevin Smith as a filmmaker, um, and I actually kind of like Red State, as I love certain aspects of it, I wanted to be very sincere, and I didn't want to kind of hold myself apart from the discussion. And so uh, there's no question when I was thinking about it that, yes, I probably was being very trying to be very earnest and be very sincere and not be ironic. But yeah. And so, but there are movies that have been described as earnest and like, I remember hearing the term, I don't remember what movie, but hearing the term painfully earnest and it's like, well, okay, because you've added painfully now it's negative, but it makes me wonder how would you, if a film was described as painfully earnest, what would you take that to mean? I would assume they mean it's earnest about something that is naive. Maybe. Whereas you you can be earnest about something that is uh, uh, worthwhile <laughs> being earnest about, but maybe if uh, you know it, you and I watched the movie, you and I and and Cole uh, watched a Christian movie called Time Changer. Time Changer. Oh boy! I think that is a painfully earnest movie. Well, and because that's... it is 
and it's very earnest. It's just very naive. Well, and that speaks to what I was going to, how I was going to uh, describe painfully earnest, which is a film that is so sincere in its motives that it forgets to be good in its execution, because motivation is enough. Uh-huh. Often, because when you're when you're so earnest, yeah, yeah, I see that. when you're so earnest that it's about them that like I've got something that I believe so wholeheartedly and I need to get it across that you forget that oh I haven't gotten it across well you know and so that to me is what painfully earnest means and maybe that's maybe that's uh, what this guy meant when he was talking about me is that I I so clearly wanted to communicate a, the way I viewed the film that I forgot to be interesting in how I was saying it fair enough. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I'm not totally thrilled with my appearance on on the, uh, with that appearance on the slash film cast. So who knows? <laughs> um, but let's get back to the the sentimentality thing. Okay. And it's, I'm actually kind of glad you brought up earnestness because uh, I think that's actually important to when sentimentality works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor is. Uh, a movie that cynic is cynical in its sentimentality. Yeah, uh, it's and unearned. It, I think yes, uh, <clears throat> it, it, and it's just setting up sort of situations like oh, this will get him in the heartstrings. We know this works because it's worked before, yeah. and not putting any uh, any heart or real work into it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, another sort of World War Two related movie, and one of the most. Uh, luxuriously sentimental movies of all time and one of the best movies of all time uh michael Curtiz's casablanca mm-hmm. um i don't think you can die, deny for a second that's a sentimental uh, movie when you get the the flashback to paris i mean yeah. that's that's the stuff of uh you know fairy tales and and love yeah. stories and and great romances and it's uh 100 unapologetically earnestly sentimental uh and it but why works. is that why is that well it works but also why is that why is that more acceptable? Well, it's more acceptable because it works. But why do you think it works? Uh, I think it works because there's an uh, an honesty on the filmmaker's part and on the screenwriter's part. Um, it's it's not just saying uh, you buy into this love story because we're telling you they're in love. Right. Uh, it's writing a backstory and it's also writing a world. The world of Casablanca, the actual city of Casablanca, um, is... Uh, a sort of dangerously unsentimental place. It's a it's a dangerous place, uh, and the movie doesn't uh, pull any punches ab- about that. And, well, and, and, and the, about the just the threat of the Nazis and all this stuff. It's and at the core of it, you have Rick, who is of course incredibly cynical. You know, I stick my neck out for nobody. That is the, a very unromantic, unsentimental view. And again, the movie believes it. As, yes. as opposed to something, I don't know why I always come up with Sweet Home Alabama as my, like... Uh, it's a good example of almost anything negative. <laughs> yeah. And that includes uh, racism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Josh Lucas in that movie, like, you don't buy for a second, like, oh, he's his heart's all scabbed over. He's Right. He, he's too far gone. There's, yeah. Whatever. Uh, you know, obviously, from the very beginning, like, oh, he's going to warm up and they're going to live happily ever after. Right. And I guess if you're you know, a thinking person who knows how stories work, you kind of know that um, that's sort of going to happen with Rick and Casablanca, but there, you know, there's uh, the, it's generally referred to as suspension of disbelief, but in general, there's a thing where you 
once you step into the world of a movie, uh, if the movie is good enough, there's a lot of shit you leave behind or leave mm-hmm. in the back of your subconscious. Yeah. Um, and so even though you thinkingly, intellectually know that, yeah, you know, Rick's probably going to warm up a little bit by the end of the movie, mm-hmm. um, it's sold to you. Uh, again, uh, honestly and with hard work and not, not cheaply or cynically. And – the, sen- the sentimentality of that film works because it so intermingles the fact that that it's possible to be sentimental while also being practical and recognizing how the world is. When you think about it, Rick has – well, he's got several choices. But when it comes down to it, he has two choices. Both of them are a little sentimental. Both of them are a little, bu- little bit romantic. But in both instances – there's an element of real honesty and real life in that if he picks Ilsa and the two of them are together, then he's screwing over, uh, now I don't remember, Paul Henry. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But now I don't remember the name of the character. That's frustrating. Yeah, I don't either. Anyway, Laszlo. Okay. Um, I'll take your word for it. And so, like, so he's screwing over him by, first off, taking his wife. So he's he's helping him a, a little bit. He's helping you know like uh, fight for freedom and all that kind of thing. But he's still taking Ilsa for selfish reasons, but reasons that are perfectly sentimental and romantic. Uh-huh. But then if he gives up Ilsa, then he's being very sentimental about the cause. But he's Should still we say but he's spoilers still, for the end of Casablanca. Whatever. I think everyone knows. Yeah. Okay. And so um, yeah, I think the end of of Casablanca is. Th- that's a cultural osmosis thing. I think you don't have to have seen it yeah. to know beautiful friendship. Not to, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. You know. Yeah. It, yeah. But he, so he's being very sentimental about the cause of good. But when you think about it, it comes at great personal sacrifice. It's not the ending that we want to see, but it's the ending that we so desperately need. And there's nothing particularly sentimental about that, even though at its core there's a sentimentality. Yeah. I feel like. Any film – and I think maybe that's the issue with, with a movie like Pearl Harbor, which even though – spoilers for Pearl Harbor – even though one of the characters in the love triangle dies, uh-huh. there's still this sentimentality of like, oh, but his – he died doing something heroic and his heart lives on. And it just – there's really – it doesn't feel like there's any stakes. And in life, anytime, anytime we get sentimental about something, I think there's almost always a twinge – of sacrifice or pain or loss. Um, and I think there's always something a little bit at stake anytime we make a sentimental decision uh, or reflect back on what our life used to be or whatever. And and I think another reason that the sentimentality in Casablanca works is because by far the most sentimental part of the film is that flashback. It's not given – we're not given that for a while. Yeah. And we are allowed to see who Rick has become, which makes the, one could say, almost the corniness of that flashback. It hurts now because we saw yeah, it's, uh, what... It's poignant. It's poignant. Like, yeah. And I feel like that's when cinnamon, sentimentality works. It's, uh, it's poignant. It's a... Uh, oh, yeah. I want to go to the Baj- lately, <laughs> so I'm talking like Cliff. <laughs> um, but, uh, and to me, I feel like... And this is something I think I might have just come up with, so it might not hold up. <laughs> um, I think that's when sentimentality works, is when it understands that there's a lot of different, there are a lot of different types of sentimentality. Not all of them 
are about making you feel good. Some of them, there is a poignance there and there's a, a sense of longing or loss or, you know, some of the, I won't say negative emotions, but some of the more tragic human emotions. Yeah, I would say most movies that are good are sentimental because mm-hmm. you're meant to have an emotional reaction to them. Uh, I mean, there are some movies that are just, I guess, intellectually good, mm-hmm. um, and those work for me. I think a lot of uh, Godard stuff is not sentimental hmm. uh, at all. Um, but what I want to move on to is that a few films, some of I've seen more recently than others from the 90s, <coughs> that maybe walk the line. They could be, maybe in another 20, 30 years, they'll be seen as the, on the same level as Casablanca. But I'm not sure. I want to get your opinion. Okay. Now, I did recently watch, and I talked about it last week, Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. And um, some of that holds up and some of it really didn't for me. Okay. Um, but uh, I also want to talk about a movie from, I think, the same year, The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, it's 94. Um, and then another Tom Hanks movie, Saving Private Ryan. I okay. sort of have these all in the same place in my head as movies that I loved when I first saw them. Okay. And when I don't like dislike them now, but when I think back on them, I question how good they actually are. Mm-hmm. Now, have you seen... Obviously, I said I just seen Forrest Gump. Have you seen Private Ryan or Shawshank? Anytime recently. Anytime recently. Um, I've seen Shawshank somewhat recently, and I think that holds up better than Forrest Gump for me. I want to say. I would you agree with that? Probably. I haven't seen Shawshank that recently. I've seen Forrest Gump probably in the last couple of years. Uh, same with Saving Private Ryan, um, and I feel like. And that's the one that's been the longest. It's been probably ten years since I've seen Private Ryan. I think. I think uh, certain things. I think a good portion of Saving Private Ryan holds up, um, and I think that's a that's a situation. Saving Private Ryan, in many ways, could have been as cheesily, cynically sentimental as Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. But there's and this this where this this goes back to the earnest thing. Pearl Harbor, I think, was in some cases painfully earnest. Whereas and it, and it all it's all I think it's all about execution. Saving Private Ryan is very earnest, mm-hmm. but in the way that it's written and also the way that it's acted and the way that it's directed, it is, t- you know, the way that it's directed is tough as nails, you know, and I think it yeah. undercuts but some it, of the it, sentimentality, but at its core, because there yeah. is to the platoon, it's like the, every platoon in every World War II movie ever, ever, right. where there's like a different guy representing each different type of yeah. American male or whatever, you know, yeah. um, but I want to, before we get into Forrest Gump and Shawshank, uh, something I, I just thought of. Okay. Because um, I want to redefine, or not redefine, but uh, get to the core of what sentiment sen- sentiment is. Okay. Um, because it's not the same as sappiness, right? Um, and it's not an it's or, not melodrama either. Uh, I'll, I have we're, we're getting to melodrama. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, it's not um, it's not a strictly uplifting or positive emotion either. Right. Sentiment, I think, just means a a realistic connection to emotions that you feel you are able to feel in your chair, mm-hmm. the emotions that the person on the screen is feeling. Yes. And so, uh, even though it would never be described that way, I think the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan is, there is a sentiment, sentimentality to it because it is, uh, trying to honestly, um, mm-hmm. without any sort of, uh, intellectual, um, 
you know, stopping points <laughs> on the way from the screen to the viewer, honestly trying to portray the uh, the sentiment of fear and terror that those soldiers felt. The, the, okay. There's a reason though that when you see someone die in the opening save of Private Ryan that you have a gut reaction. Whereas I think if it were an unsentimental film, it would just be uh there could be carnage or whatever without it affecting you the way it does. I think the reason you have an emotional connection to that first sequence is because we are allowed to see Tom Hanks. We see him, we see the reactions, we see some of his reactions and there's there's a good, you know, there's several shots where it's not even clear we're seeing what he's seeing. It's just, it's, it's creating the environment and the environment's quite horrifying. But, um, but we keep seeing him move forward and trying to do his job. And because we are locking into a character played by a very well-known and beloved actor, we are, that's part of it. I think that's part of it, but here's, here's the difference. Uh, so we, I feel a very deep emotional connection because Tom Hanks, my bosom buddy, Uh uh, is is in serious danger whereas a film like black hawk down i would say is any sentimental any any sentimentality comes from the idea of these guys sticking together even though many of them are kind of faceless i mean our our end point for black hawk down is josh hartnett who's not necessarily the most relatable actor that's that that is a good point and that's uh this is why we are a good team because you bring that sort of uh actor uh, standpoint to it, and I, as Everly formalist slash structuralist, that's mm. my new thing. I'm going to talk about structuralism a lot. Oh, that's very exciting. Um, I, I think a part of it, the reason it works in both um, um, Sam Private Ryan and Black Hawk Down for me is just the placement and movement of the car- of the camera mm-hmm. and where you are in relation to the action. You know, you and also the use. Of, you know, we talk so much about cameras. We should. We should talk more about uh, about sound. I think that's oh, absolutely. We need to do an episode. Actually, I agree. That's the big thing that I got out of uh, film school from a technical standpoint is how important sound is. Yeah, well, one of my my first like production one teacher told me an audience is more willing to accept a movie with bad picture and good sound than good picture and bad sound. Mm. Uh, and I think that's absolutely true. And so I think these the the developments in what you can do with sound, uh, Saving Private Ryan is a great example of it, especially that opening sequence and the way that you are enveloped, you know, um, the way that you know, you know, these guys are wearing helmets and stuff. Maybe this, their peripheral vision is blocked and you yeah. can only see as far as the, uh, the edges of the scope. Uh, and so uh, there's a unknowingness and a terror, and I think that's the sentiment. Mm-hmm. And I think let's go back to Pearl Harbor. I'm okay with this being our whipping boy. All episode. Oh, it works very well. Um, the shot, the uh, much maligned, rightfully so, shot of the camera following the Man, bomb I, I out of the plane. Shot. It is, it is the word. It is for one thing. It's a morally reprehensible shot. Good. I'm glad you brought it. I'm <laughs> glad you said that. Um, and because unlike unlike Spielberg, who is asking us to put ourselves in the place of the soldiers, Michael Bay is asking us to put ourselves in the place of the bomb. That's it, that's who he and I think that's he's consistent asking, with a lot of his work. He's asking the, us to sympathize with destruction. Yeah, but I think I think a lot of his work um, is more on the side of the machine and technology than man. Mm-hmm. That machines are the stars of his movies a lot of the time. Yeah, I'd say that's right. Uh, and um, then maybe it's uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, old fashioned or naive or prudish of me to say that it's morally reprehensible, but. Uh, it's to me because it's a real thing that actually happened. Yeah. It's worse than 
the following the car as it gets unleashed from the uh, truck in Bad Boys Two and rolls down the right. the bridge in Miami. Um, even though it's the same general shot, you know, you're with the bomb, you're with the car. Yeah, because it's a real thing that actually happened, and real lots of real people actually died. Um, and you know what's it, interesting? It, it offends me. There's even I, I I'm of the opinion there's even a way to do that shot and make it not morally rent, reprehensible, even if it's taking place, uh, even if it's it's a real situation. Like let's say you were to follow the bomb that was dropped on uh, Nagasaki. Okay, now it's all about the attitude with which you follow it. If you follow it like not merely American, not merely war. World history is happening right now. A horrible thing is about to happen, and we are going to follow it all the yes, way down. Yes, exactly. Something if, like that. An inevitability. Uh, if as the bomb falls, the emotion that's rising in you is dread. Dread. As opposed to excitement in Pearl Harbor. Right. Then, yeah, that's a good way to do that shot. Yeah, and and that is in no way... Because that's the thing is, the bomb that was falling is one of many. And... So why are we watching this one specifically? Because it's awesome, <laughs> you know. And that's and that's no reason to follow a bomb, as you know. I, w- I was about to say, as our boys get killed, as any human that actually yeah. died is 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 about to die. Yeah. Yeah. So. <clears throat> okay. So that, that's the same Private Ryan thing. I guess let's get back to Shawshank and why I think. It, see if you can tell me why I think it holds up better. Okay. Do you have any? Uh, um. Well, I think because Here, and, I'll, I'll, and, and I'm of the opinion, by the way, that I think Forrest Gump holds up pretty well if you just if you just recognize that like there's a reason that Robert I think Robert Zemeckis is is a good filmmaker who makes good choices, and more specifically, there's a reason that he makes every choice that he that he makes, and a big thing that that I used to have a problem with with Forrest Gump and any number of other movies is musical choices and with Forrest Gump of course it's every iconic song yeah. but that's the idea the idea is we're but, so familiar with these eras in American history but we're not familiar with this point of view on those eras and that's the key we need to be shown iconic things that we have a deep emotional connection with with a guy who we 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 don't often see life from this point of view and that's why we need to see the most iconic things um, uh, of American history uh, I, I think that's true, but I think there's a reason he's uh, there's a different reason that he's using those songs, and in a glib way, it's kind of because there's going to be a soundtrack album that's going to sell very well. I think that's obviously there that's, is that yes, that's meaner than I need need to be Robert Zemeckis, and I don't fully mean it that way, but that is kind of what I'm getting at. And the difference I think between even though Zemeckis has more good films under his belt than Frank Darabont, the reason I think that maybe Frank Darabont is if not a better, then maybe at least a truer filmmaker. Mm-hmm. They're both commercial filmmakers. Yes. But I think Zemeckis is often a commercial filmmaker by choice, and Frank Darabont is a commercial filmmaker because the stories that he wants to tell uh, have commercial viability. And so it, and so a thing like Shawshank feels more honest, more classical, mm-hmm. more like Casablanca. Whereas with Forrest Gump, uh, I think it. <coughs> while there are, like I talked about, some just – beautiful compositions and beautiful little sequences in that movie there are a number of things like the music like him giving the guy the idea for the shit happens bumper sticker yeah that 
go back to our seeing the strings episode. It pulls me out of the movie and makes me think uh, that Robert Zemeckis thought like audiences will respond to this and it's yeah. treating his film more as a commodity than as a work of art and it goes back to i, I don't and wanna, you know I that's my least any... favorite kind of humor yeah. yes um it goes back to uh, i don't know if i'll get more emails that caused the thing last time but back to the future and the things that i don't like about it and they, to me the shit happens bumper sticker or the smiley face which have back to back and both have the same payoff and you did you really need both of those in the movie or it's like they're, it's just the same se- sequence twice in a row. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, and at both times he says, some years later I heard that man made a lot. How? How did you hear? <laughs> anyway, that is the same as... You okay there? Yes. All right. That sense of the audience will respond to this because they recognize this thing is the same as what bothers me about this line. Oh, the Chuck Berry. No. That's one. that one too. Yes, that's a good example. But the one I was going to say was, you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? That's the same thing is the audience is going to go oh delorean yeah i know what that is and that's uh that that's not true artistry to me that's 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 commercialism it's uh, yes but i think that's a that comes from a different uh a different place than the retroactive like oh look at that like for example if uh if they tried to say that uh Marty McFly says, I'm Darth Vader, and then Crispin Glover's character goes on to make Star Wars. Like, <laughs> okay. they, they don't make that, and that's to the film's credit. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the just Time Machine out of a DeLorean, that, that's people, that's putting it in a very, cul- in a modern cultural context, and I think that's okay. It's, okay, it's more acceptable. It's still, I don't think, a very funny joke. It's Dane Cook humor. Right? I, I guess so. It's humor and, of recognition. And I'll be honest, because I don't know anything about cars and I don't really have much of a cultural memory of the time, I, but that's it doesn't even strike me as a joke. But yeah, if you were uh, in your 20s in 1985 and you saw yeah. that, you definitely, that would be a joke. Oh, no question. Because the because the car itself is a joke. Right. Um, but, but yeah, uh, you're right. The Chuck Berry thing is way worse. That's, that's, a, as, that's a better example of the... This is a bit the, of a tangent here, but like, in Back to the Future... The only reason the town has a black mayor is because the white kid told him, like, said he should run for mayor, and then mayor. and then Chuck Berry gets his music from a white kid. Like, it's I know that it's not really that's not really what it's about, but it so makes, you're saying it sounds to me like it makes me a bit uneasy. Like black people stole their music from us. That's that's what Zemeckis is <laughs> in his in his alternate universe. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what, that's what happened. And uh, but no, we're getting we're getting off. Point and here. it's interesting because uh, the soundtrack is full of Huey Lewis and Huey's a little too black sounding for me. Um, that's an American psycho joke, everybody. Uh, but to go back to, um, I actually, here's the thing. In spite of the fact that Shawshank Redemption has kind of a sentimental ending and one that wraps up so well, I think that that appeals to kind of a sentimental. But no, see here, you're using the sentiment word sentimental in the way that, it is normally connotatively used. What I want mm-hmm. to get to is that the movie is sentimental the whole way through. Well, here's what I was going to say, is that there are certain things that... Well, okay. Hmm. Well, okay, I'm saying the, if I can't. Because I think you're right. I think I'm thinking of it in, in, in a different context, not the one that we are using right now. Yeah, where so, the movie is sentimental all the way through because the... Little thing that I said before that I guess I'm going to stick with as a definition it is that it is uh, the movie wants us, and I think is largely effective uh, in having us have the same 
emotional reaction in our chairs that the person that we're identifying with is having on screen. Mm-hmm. Not diluted in any way, but literally trying to transmit the same emotion. Right. And you can say to me, isn't that what movies do? And I say, yes, that's why I think most movies... Well, in theory, yeah. Yes. Most movies are are sentimental or aiming to be. I think al- almost all of them. And that's that's kind of what I wanted, why I wanted to do this episode, to maybe rescue the word sentimental. Well, and it's negative uh, connotation. So the question that you had was, why does Shawshank Redemption hold up more than Forrest Gump, even though both of them are sentimental? And I think it goes back to what I was saying about uh, what we were both saying about Rick Blaine in Casablanca, which is because he is so hard edged, it's sort of there's sentiment, there's sentimentality in a good in a good way, but it doesn't necessarily seem like it for example i will quote a line in shawshank redemption that you don't often hear in movies that are sentimental and i mean that in a good way um i'm gonna open my fly and you're gonna swallow what i give you to swallow okay (laughs) that's horrifying (laughs) okay and in and because it feels like and that's my i'm gonna say that line has probably been something like it has probably been said in prisons across our great land Uh and and that is such an unblinking uh, reality. Now, it goes to put us very much in the emotional state of the character, but stuff like that, because it's so willing to just be like, this is the reality that we're given, I think we are more willing to accept that than cheesy jokes from Forrest Gump and uh, not the character Forrest Gump, but from the film. Um, and I think it might also just be a function of genre. You know, Forrest Gump is just as much a comedy as it is a drama. But you can be, there's <laughs> lots and lots of funny stuff in Forrest Gump. It's one of the most quotable movies of all time, probably oh, yeah. uh, because of how, well, so Sha- Shawshank Redemption. Don't you remember that quote? I just told you a moment ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's hilarious. It's immensely quotable. Um, Although Clancy Brown has a lot of things that are <laughs> says a lot of things that are funny. And yeah. What is this happy horse shit? I think that's one of his <laughs> lines, which I love. Um, uh, but then, uh, see, uh, Forrest Gump has a line like, uh, "Sorry, I had a fight in the middle of your Black Panther party," which is hilarious <laughs> and not at all uh, yeah. pandering or or commercial. Right. It's just a funny thing about that moment mm-hmm. um, that really makes me laugh. But <laughs> the thing you're saying about this. Uh, it's honest about its harder edges. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, goes back a step... You can even take that back a step further into the way that Frank Darabont, Frank Darabont is thinking of his audience. Mm-hmm. Both, I think both Darabont and Zemeckis um, and Michael Bay mm-hmm. are thinking about the audience when they're making the movie, yeah. just in different ways. I think Frank, Frank Darabont... And we're talking about the Frank Darabont of Shawshank Redemption here. I know he's made The Majestic and some... Uh, well, Green Mile uh, is a movie that you really don't like. Yeah, I really don't. And I don't like The Majestic. Um, yeah, uh, we're talking about... We're talking pretty specifically, I think, about Shawshank mm-hmm. and Forrest Gump, although I also brought it back to the future because I love hate mail. Um <laughs> And, and, and again, think, send that only to David. Yeah, David at BattleshipRetention.com. I like Back to the Future. Um, <laughs> uh, ah, shit. What was I going to say? <coughs> Frank Darabont. Yes, okay. So um, the way that Frank, Frank Darabont is thinking of his audience in terms of this is really going to affect the audience. Mm-hmm. He's thinking of it almost, I think, like he's making something for 
someone he respects, like his friends or his family. Like, yeah. like I want them to like this. Um, whereas I think when Robert Zemeckis puts in the dumb shit that I don't like, as opposed to all the great stuff in Forrest Gump, the, but the, I, th- I think what he's thinking is they're going to eat this up. He's thinking of he's thinking of the audience as a them, mm-hmm. as opposed to Frank Darabont, who's thinking of the audience as someone he actually knows, or maybe even for himself. Mm-hmm. I would love this, um, and I don't th- I, I don't think, and obviously this is pure speculation, but I don't think Robert Zemeckis puts stuff like the shit happens or or have a nice day T-shirt stuff in his movie because he thinks it's funny. I think because he thinks we will think it's funny. Uh, well, let me suggest this, that what you're basically talking about, you're talking about somebody who's taking his cues emotionally uh, with, with Darabont in Shawshank Redemption specifically, um, you're f- and and very much with The Mist, and I'd say the pilot of The Walking Dead. Um, you have a filmmaker who, like you're talking about how he's respecting his audience. I would say he's respecting his characters and he's taking his emotional cues from the characters. And the more you respect them, the more honest you're going to be about their circumstances where, and that's where you get that horrifying line in those circumstances. Um, he, he loves them and respects them enough to show the world they're living in. The shit happens and the happy face t-shirt force Gump doesn't know the outcome. I mean, he, he, we show later that he kind of knows the outcome. Oh, we know some years later, he, some hurt. years later, see, Ugh. he hurt. Yeah. Ugh. Um, where you, we know the outcome. That's a film made very much for us. I feel like we aren't. And that the very nature of who Forrest Gump is as a character is a little distancing from us because he doesn't have the same perspective we do, uh, on life. And we sometimes wish we had his perspective. Um, but we're distanced from him. We have to look at him uh, admiringly and say like, Oh, I wish I could be more like him. Uh, but alas, I, I, I'm outside of him and I'm outside the film. Hey, that's a funny joke. Like it's a film made very much for the audience and there's nothing necessarily wrong with the, with making film for the audience provided you're not pandering. And those jokes are pandering. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's where you get a hard edged sentimentality is he's putting us in the, with uh, Shawshank is Darabont's putting us in the emotional position of the character and that and everything that that entails whereas i think with with uh Forrest Gump i think he wants us to sympathize okay is the difference between sympathy and empathy he okay. wants uh, Darabont wants us to empathize with the character whereas i think Zemeckis I think he realizes that we are only ever going to be able to sympathize with him, mm-hmm. and, and there's a big there's a big difference, and, and it's distancing and maybe even a little condescending. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, but before we move on, I do want to say, like I said, there's lots and lots of stuff about Forrest Gump that I like. Mostly, it's visual sense, which yeah. comes both from Zemeckis and from I want to say Don Burgess shot that, but I honestly. Mm-hmm. Another time to look it up. Going a mile a minute here. Uh, and I also want to say there's plenty of stuff I don't like about Shawshank Redemption. The warden character, for the most part, yeah. uh, is pretty unimaginatively drawn. Yeah, and it's and it's not Bob Gunton's fault. I like yeah. him as an actor a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, but I want to move on to something. I, t- I said we were going to bring it up. <coughs> I want to I keep with this comparison thing. Okay. I want to compare two movies, one of which works in my opinion, one of which doesn't in my opinion. Okay. Uh, both of which are melodramatic. 
Okay. So, this is the melodrama thing. Oh, boy. For those who've been keeping track, said we were going to talk about melodrama. The one that I think works is Precious. Okay. The one that I think doesn't, although you might disagree with me, is Requiem for a Dream. Okay. Uh, even though, like Forrest Gump, I liked Requiem when I first saw it. But I... When I say that I rewatched Forrest Gump and it kind of didn't hold up for me, I rewatched Requiem for a Dream and I felt dumb for having liked it in the first place. That's how much it didn't hold up for me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. How do you feel about Requiem for a Dream? Well, uh, As, we, we've if just, you like it, I've just called you dumb. No, no, no. We've, it's, <laughs> hey, yeah. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe what you mean is you feel dumb for having been suckered in by certain aspects of it. When we've talked about Requiem for a Dream before, that it's a, it's a film that I actually never really responded to. Okay. Um, I feel like no matter how much he tried with the editing tricks, like you're, like you're, I, I don't mean to call them tricks. There's some good editing in that film. But much like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, it felt like he was trying, like the whole sequence of someone getting high, it's like he was trying desperately to put us in the position of these characters, but I always felt at arm's length. And that's yeah. not the fault of the of the actors. I think Ellen Burson's doing great work. I think Marlon Wayans is doing great work. Um, Jennifer Connelly. But, but um, there's a di- um uh, Janusz Kaminski as a cinematography is a, is a great stylist, but he really is um, allowing us to be there in Save Private Ryan. Whereas Matthew Liebetik, who is also uh, aesthetically um, and intellectually a fantastic cinematographer, I think that's maybe where that distancing thing comes from. That as as grimy as it is, it still doesn't look like our world because no, of the no. way it's it's photographed and the lenses that are used and the and the tinting. Yeah, uh, it, it feels. Uh, overly composed and yeah. it, may, it might be beautiful to look at intellectually but it's not it's a little it's not going to be <laughs> sentimental because it's not going to put us there and there is a place for that kind of cinematography oh, you absolutely. Know, i think i think those who liked um drive mm-hmm. might agree that that uh a series of beautiful shots on their own can be quite effective it's um, weird for me to describe a movie that is as gross as requiem for a dream as sterile <laughs> but there's a certain sterility to the to way it's shot. Beautiful, but it's both of those things. Yeah, yeah. It's sterile and beautiful. Um, but uh, but no, Requiem for a Dream. I, I oddly enough, I was never a huge fan of it. I respected certain aspects of it, and I still do. Um, but no, I think that I believe <laughs> I believe a long time ago, and it's a good line, so I'll repeat it. That uh, Requiem for a Dream seems like uh, like Jack Webb wrote it, um, <laughs> and it's it's someone who probably has not experienced this. Um, writing what he thinks it might be, and so um, let me let me interject here. And because it speaks okay. to because it speaks to generalities and and things that maybe the person doesn't know about, and it's very likely they do. I don't know. Um, not very likely. Very possible is what I meant to say. Um, because it speaks to generalities, that immediately speaks to something in in ourselves. It's like, yeah, oh man, I could see how that. I could see it being like that, uh-huh. you know, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I'll get to Precious in a minute. You were going to say something. I was just going to go on a tangent. Go ahead. Best Christopher McDonald character name. Tappy Tivins from Requiem for a Dream, Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore, or Kent Mansley from The Iron Giant. Kent Mansley. I think I, think I agree. It's not the yeah. showiest of the three. Right. But I think it is the funniest. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> His last name is Mansley. <laughs> what? Bill Mansley? Nah. I don't know. Kent. Got it, and it also works out well that uh, that uh, Kent was the name of a popular cigarette uh, at the time. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, yeah, Kent makes for 
good smoking or I don't know, something like that. But like smart people smoke Kent. I, I know this from, <laughs> I believe it's, uh, I believe they have an ad for Kent in, uh, good night and good luck. Oh, okay. So, um, <clears throat> anyway, just, just wanted to make sure we were on the same <laughs> page and you can email your favorite Christopher McDonald character name to David at battleship retention.com. Uh, include me on that one. I want to know. <laughs> so, um, shooter McGavin's good though, by the way. Uh-huh. I like that. I like any, any name with, uh, are you, shooter. are you not a fan of Tappy Tibbins? Is it, is it a little too much? That's a little too much, I think. Okay. Where's that from? That's working for a dream. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, um, so the uh, uh, now precious man going into that film, having watched the trailer, and just knowing what I know about, it, and I've said this on the show before, uh, my whole attitude is like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Literally, she has all of these problems. Yeah. All of them. Like, it's not merely that she's overweight. It's not merely that she's pregnant currently yeah and has a kid who incidentally has a, a mental disorder right whose father is, is her father is her father abusive mother like it's just everything oh and her mother's on welfare and constantly lying it just, it's <laughs> it's literally everything it's like that could- Sinclair's the jungle <laughs> everything bad that could have happened to immigrants yeah. in chicago at that time happens to the main character yeah it's and so like alternate title for precious was of course murphy's law and so um so yeah it it, it could not be more melodramatic in its setup but this goes to this goes to i would say it goes to execution but if you look at the execution in requiem for a dream i mean jared jared leto putting the syringe into his horrifically infected arm that's pretty rough uh-huh. But it but it goes back to what we're talking about with the bomb. There's a way to do the bomb thing right. It's all about the attitude. And the attitude for Requiem for a Dream was standing outside being like, man, this is horrific. Yeah. But it, with Precious, they actually, much to my surprise, and when, when I talk objectively about Precious, it still sounds ridiculous, even though I know I've seen it. Uh-huh. It allows us to understand the emotions that Precious is going into it. It allows us to understand the emotions that her horribly abusive mother is going into mm-hmm. is experiencing without, by the way, excusing her behavior. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to get too much into just, um, repeating ourselves mm-hmm. with the Shawshank Forrest Gump comparison. I, I guess I want to talk about the melodramatic elements. Right. Um, and how that affects, uh, um, Affects sen- sentimentality and how it uh, sort of is the same thing that it's a movie that uh, a movie a word that has a bad connotation. I think that's how mm-hmm. you brought it up earlier. Is that that's uh, that melodrama isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, and uh, both of these films are are definitely melodrama. And my my working definition of melodrama is um, basically a story in which the characters are constantly reacting to the things that are happening to them mm-hmm. as opposed to a story where in the things that happen in the movie happen because of who the characters are. Hmm. That That's how I think of melodrama. Yeah. And both of these cases are mostly like, and then this happens. Yeah. And then this bad thing yeah. happens. Um, and it's a perfectly valid way of telling a story, but it, it does, I guess it does all come back to the same thing of, are you, supposed to is the filmmaker expecting the audience to uh 
identify with the character. Yeah. Because uh, something like like A Precious can still be a character piece and be a melodrama. Yeah. Whereas something like Requiem for a Dream, I think the audience is supposed to go, oh, or like, oh, man. Yeah. Oh, no. Like that. Oh, shit. High five. <laughs> um, yeah, it's – yeah, it, absolutely. It, the, the general attitude – I feel like, and I'm and I'm somebody who I liked the wrestler, and of course I I loved um, Black Swan, um, but with Requiem for a Dream, I do feel like he's he's not necessarily tisking at his characters, he's not shaming them, but he does seem there does seem to be a little bit of judgment of like, man, can you believe the stuff that these people are going through? Whereas Precious seems to be. What are these people going through? Mm-hmm. I want to know. It, it's inqu- there's an inquisitive uh, nature to it, and one of 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 empathy and a desire to know who they are, and that's and a commitment to seeing the world through their eyes, and that's the, and and that's how a film as horrific as Precious can be considered a good melodrama, just as a film as you know almost goofily uh, sappy as The Notebook can also be considered a good melodrama. Which it's, I still haven't seen The Notebook. And, uh, people, I think you'd love it. Yeah, people tell me it's, it's good. It's, it's, not a, it's not a perfect film, but it's, it's unabashedly melodramatic, but it asks, what are these characters feeling? Can you, re- can you as a person, relate to these feelings? I'm going to try and make you be able to relate to how these people are feeling in some way. And that's what makes melodrama work it's what makes sentiment work um and so like yeah and so it's so you know earlier i was talking about you know the the grit the grittiness and horror of the execution of saving private ryan Mm -hmm. and the content of uh shawshank redemption and and i guess you know some of the imagery of of uh precious and and recommend for a dream but i think i think what we were talking about with the bomb in pearl harbor and how there's nothing inherently immoral about doing that it's all about the attitude and what the person what the filmmaker context a context and what they're trying to do mm-hmm. and oh intent intent and there yeah okay. yeah um, i feel like that's 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 when it works uh there's a um you know, you brought up something earlier, and I wish I had made a note because I can't remember what movie we were talking about. But you were talking about the idea that um, part of the reason you have an honest emotional reaction is because you remember what it was like to... Uh, do you remember what we were talking about? It was just within the last hour, and I can't remember. I wish I'd written it down. But uh, I, I want to... There is... A, going back to the Back to the Future discussion from t- like 10 weeks ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it was quite that long. Maybe it was. Um I talked about how nostalgia is poisonous when you're trying to be a critic. Uh, But that's separate from the thing. I think nostalgia as a tool for a filmmaker Mm -hmm. can be, can be effective. Um, And so I I wrote down, there's a number of movies on here that I, that you specifically wouldn't um, think of as being uh, sentimental that I wanted to put down because I think, they do try to do this thing. They try to connect you emotionally to, to the character, and that is sentimental. One of them is uh, one of the darkest, most devastating films you'll ever see. Uh, Lucas Moodyson's *Lilia Forever* hmm. uh, from 2004, maybe I can't remember quite when, but that's um, uh, essentially about a 
poor teenage girl who's kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. Uh, and what's uh, obviously that's a horrible, horrible story, mm-hmm. but what makes it so effective is how honestly, not cynically, um, it, um, relays her, her innocence. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a, a cynical movie would make her, naive or just uh more childlike i think she's i mean she's supposed to be uh 15 or so um but more childlike to like a way of getting our sympathies as opposed to empathy Mm -hmm. this goes back to that thing um but this is a good film that doesn't treat her like a (coughs) like a like she's some pure simpleton you know Mm -hmm. that deserves our pity yeah it puts us in her shoes by reminding us what it was like to be a teenager Hmm. You know, um, and there's some darkness and there's some hard edges to it, but it's also, this is a time in her life when she's still kind of filled with hope for the world. Her life is in front of her, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, the thing that happens to her is so devastating because, uh, not because we can from a distance say like, oh, tisk tisk, you know, yeah. what, look at what she, you know, she could have been so much more. It's because we are able to actually be there and be 15 years old and be like, oh my God, what if my life had cut off at 15 what if this yeah. horrible thing had happened i'd never had a chance to 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 grow uh, you know and experience the uh wonderful life i guess some people haven't had wonderful lives yeah. I'm projecting my life's pretty fucking good right now yeah. i bitch a lot for a guy with a good life i know um, uh, and that's why lilia forever um though it is a dark and depressing movie is i think uh one of the more effectively sentimental movies uh well, on, at least on my list here. And when you think about it, in, in some ways it's similar to Precious in that they they could be viewed as issue films. Mm-hmm. And issue yeah, films, yeah. I mean, those can be – those are often very sentimental, but they're also quite – frequently quite terrible because it views the characters as the personification of this issue. It's like – no, everybody's every one person is different. Their circumstances are all different. Their individual personalities are different. So let's look at that first, not mm-hmm. what they represent. You know, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm saying that there are some movies in which, you know, characters are allegorical. That's fine. But these movies specifically, the reason that they work, the reason that the sentimentality works, is because they are approaching the people, uh, the characters, as full-blooded, three-dimensional. People that you might meet, not, mm-hmm. well, we need to show sex slavery and how horrible it is. Uh, let's have this girl who's always thinking about sex slavery. Now, <laughs> my guess is when she is in it, uh, she's probably thinking about it a lot and how terrible it is. But, you know, it's... it's And also, to the, uh, another reason we effective is it doesn't actually come until pretty late in the movie. Okay. You just see her sort of living and not really having parents that are present and mm-hmm. uh, sort of her inner mental life. It's a really good movie. Okay. And I think you you, you added as a movie recommendation once. I think I probably did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, those, by the way, if you don't read the website, movie recommendations are a thing we do with no real, uh, no real regular intervals, just occasionally nope. Tyler or I or any of the writers. If we think of a movie we think mm-hmm. not enough people have seen, yeah. we'll write a paragraph about it. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not at all regular. You cannot count on it, uh, at all. Uh, and another movie that I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it's thought of as a sentimental movie. Um, 
and we can talk about why because it clearly is is Wong Kar Wai's in the mood for love uh, hmm. and I think because it's so much maybe um, uh, reminiscent of uh, French New Wave and the uh, style and aesthetic of it's um, uh, of the film mm-hmm. that it's maybe thought of as more of uh, a, an intellectual or academic piece, but really this I, this goes back to the nostalgia thing I'm talking about with Lily forever. Mm-hmm. Um, In the mood for love allows us to remember what it's what the beginning of a relationship is like mm-hmm. before it's really gone anywhere. Um, which in some ways is the most fun part of a relationship. The rest of the mm-hmm. relationship is also fun in plenty of other ways. You know what? They're all the most fun in different ways. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, but it is a thing that happens at the beginning of a relationship that no matter how good the relationship is, you can never hold on to because it's just there because it's the beginning. Right. So it sets us into this, allows us to remember what it's like, and then lets us live there for two hours. It's a two-hour movie, I think. Uh, yeah, about that. Uh, would you consider it? In the Mood for Love, a sentimental film? and Or I, stupid for even thinking anyone wouldn't? Oh, no. I, I Because of the way it's made, I think people could look at it. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. As, a, as an exercise, as something that is very uh, intellectualized mm-hmm. um, and... And not necessarily experimental, but like, oh, it's kind of untraditional storytelling. And you don't, first off, you don't, I don't think many people, probably myself included, would immediately jump to, oh, a film that is told unconventionally, but is still sentimental. I'd say nine times out of 10, if something is done in a, in an unconventional way, it's not that concerned with sentimentality, often because it's not that concerned with character. Um, Maybe not nine times out of 10, I'll go seven. Okay. So, um, but, uh, is that because, because if it's told in an unconventional way, you would think, well, that means it's not concerned with narrative, not that it's not concerned with character, but do you kind of have to have narrative for character because you have to see the way they change? And the way they react to the things that happen. This yes, is this is another episode completely. Yeah, one uh, we should write down and not forget because I want to talk about that. Yes, na- uh, narrative, narrative, and character. You have a pen and pad oh, right I in front see. of you. I asked you for a pen at the beginning <laughs> of the episode, and I haven't used it once. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you. I think I think you need a certain degree of narrative so that you can see how a character changes or doesn't change, and how you wish they would change uh, in okay. response to the circumstances. Let's save that for our other Indeed. episode. I think I already said everything I have to say about it. Um, <laughs> oh, if you think you and I can't talk for an hour about that, about what you just said, um, you haven't been listening to this show for 248 episodes. But, uh, yeah, I would say if somebody is making a film that is unconventional, now, that's not nece- it's not always true, of course, but um, I think they're concerned with other things than us connecting with a character. Sometimes it means they're just interested in exploring the medium, and so you won't run across that. So I think a lot of people who would look at uh, In the Mood for Love uh, I think a lot of film people could look at that and be like, wow, that's really powerful. It's really beautiful. And it's, oh, it's so meditative. And it's just got such a, such an odd tone throughout. And they could look at it like that. And all of that is true. But mm-hmm. when you look at it from the point of view of it, it's, it's almost as if we are living in someone's memory. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to last year at Marion Bot. Did you ever see that? Which I still haven't seen. It's very similar in that there is no real narrative I mean, there is, but we don't see it like beginning, middle, and end. We mm-hmm. see it like 
oh, here's a flash here of this. Here's a flash there. Yeah. And when we like, get the impression of it. Because it, it is an impressionistic. I, I don't know. I haven't seen Last Year at Marimbad, but I know In the Mood for Love at least is an impressionistic. I'd film. say that's. I'd say that's about right. And so, the. Um, so yeah, I'd say, and and I think there's an inherent sentimentality in. In memory, because we have an emotional reaction to almost any memory we have, even the, or we have an emotional connection to the past. So it doesn't matter if the memory is good, bad, or completely. Uh, if if we didn't feel anything about it at the time, the very fa- I, I recently uh, we talked last week about the Rockfire Explosion documentary. Uh-huh. Uh, as a kid, I had no feelings towards the Rockfire Explosion. I did remember there was Showbiz Pizza. They had the ape. <laughs> okay, that's what I remember. Uh, I didn't even remember that the band, the mechanized band, was called the Rockfire Explosion. But in watching the documentary, which I did over the weekend, um, I had an emotional reaction to the very fact that I remembered this. And so, because in the mood for love is pretty much a me- uh, just this swirling memory that we're living in, it has that feeling of not necessarily nostalgia, but of just of hark- uh, of remembering back to this thing that's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it is a sentimental film. Okay. Um, that was a long answer no, to your question. I, uh, I just want one more thing I want to mention okay. uh, in my list of sort of movies you don't think of as sentimental but are. And this is also the same thing. that brings us back to the beginning of a relationship. But I think the reason this movie wouldn't be thought of as sentimental is because it's basically just all talk, all the whole movie. Okay. Uh, and that's before sunrise. Okay, uh, but I think that is much like in the mood for love, a sort of um, nostalgic uh, implementation of sentimentality that's trying to put you in that same flirtatious early relationship uh, period. I've not seen before sunrise. Oh, okay. Well, so. you should check it out. I know it's, it's uh, really good. we we have both of them uh, here at the house, and uh, I it's one of those things uh, because we own them. I'm. In no rush. I'm in no rush. Yeah. It's it's the same reason as uh, it took me so long to see It's a Wonderful Life. It's like, well, it's on, there are people are like, it's on every year. It's like, exactly. It's like <laughs> when you live in New York and you don't go see the Statue of Liberty. Oh, that's, a, that's a good idea. And so, yeah. um, I, I never went up in the Sears Tower. Chicago, not once? Four years, never went. You know what? I went because I had friends visiting. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happens. But uh, although that John Hancock building, I, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. Um, so I have a question for you I'm sorry did you want to talk more about Before Sunrise I have nothing to say about it but that doesn't mean you don't that's all that's all I got because I want to start wrapping up okay well you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning but we didn't I I feel like we didn't really explore it and maybe I'm just not remembering Um, so why why is it I mean we talked about it with earnestness we didn't talk about it with sentimentality why is it that sentimentality has become something of a dirty word amongst Film critics, like, why is it only ever viewed as negative? I wonder how it came to to be that because, um, uh, of course, when they're talking about when someone uses sentimentality in a negative way, they're not they're only talking about a specific kind of sen- sentimentality, yeah. a false. I think an I think an, un- an unearned sentimentality, unearned, yeah, yeah, or cynical is a word I like to use, yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how it came to be used that used as that it just maybe developed as a shorthand. I yeah, and oh, I yeah, and and do you think? I think that people, I think the critics are instinctively suspicious, 
and maybe this is a good thing, but yeah, instinct critical. Well, yeah, skeptical. Um, is that? Hmm. Do those words mean the same thing? I don't think they do. That might be another episode. Okay, write that down. <laughs> so this is exciting. Thank God, I was running. We we're running out of topics. <laughs> Sooner, it was getting to the point we were going to have to talk about westerns. <laughs> anyway, so um, I like that we both laughed derisively at the idea of talking about westerns. So um, I, we've said before there are large topics that we keep in our back pocket on the off chance that someday we run out of topics. No, we haven't talked about war movies, even if we mention war movies throughout uh, certain episodes, yeah. as we have today. Um, but yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, critics are are inherently uh, skeptical and suspicious if they feel like a film is trying to appeal to your emotions. But there's nothing inherently wrong with a film trying to appeal to your emotions. Would you? What do you think about? No, that? No, I think that's kind of what a lot of art does. Not all art. Okay. But uh, 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 yeah, it, it is supposed to and spark you- an emotional transformation. In you, um, and that's and some of it is again not all art. That's all right. I need to say. Why do I need to talk in fucking circles? I don't know. Why do I have to preface everything I say? <laughs> I mean, not everything. There we go. So, um, <laughs> so it's uh, and this goes back to something actually we were saying off air. We were talking about the way. Okay, all right, my pickiness in eating, uh-huh. and you and and you compared it to. Uh, you're not a picky film watcher. I'm not a picky. Well, well, no, I am now. You're discerning, but right, but you're like, not, uh, you, there you was a time when I just you're whatever. not self limiting as a right. film watcher. Okay, whereas I think you are to a certain extent yeah. when it comes to food. Oh, there's no question. Um, and the general and what you specifically said is is you challenge yourself as a film watcher. Why don't you challenge yourself as somebody who who eats stuff? And by the way, I do try things from time to time. Occasionally, it's like. Much to my surprise, I enjoy this. Yeah. Other times, like, yeah, I was right. So, um, yeah, you were saying you like butternut squash uh, soup. Yes, I do. Have you tried split pea soup? No. Because that's a thing I put off for years because when I was a kid, I didn't like the way it looked. I don't like peas. Okay. Eh, you probably wouldn't like Okay. Um, There's a lot of things like that that I didn't like as a kid. Sour cream, guacamole, hummus. We're, I'm from St. Louis. There was no hummus uh, in the yeah, 1980s yeah, in St. Yeah, Louis. Yeah. Um, hummus was invented uh, in like 2001, right? In some hipster area. Um, but uh, I forgot where I was. Uh, where I was headed? Something oh yeah, taste. That. Okay, so um, so I said that I don't that I didn't think that totally fit because I was challenging myself as a filmmaker intellectually. I don't have much. The only way I can challenge myself as an eater is to try something. Uh-huh. If I don't like it, I have no choice about whether or not I like it. I can muscle through it. People say that certain things are an acquired taste. Like people say, like uh, alcohol, it's an acquired taste. Like, well, I have no desire to get drunk, so I'm not going to muscle through yeah. this when I'm going to when I could be drinking something I like. And so, but at but, the same time, wouldn't you say an acquired taste is something you end up appreciating more? Something like the Werkmeister harmonies, which you were reluctant to see at first, and because of I was outside ex- influences, you had a not necessarily great time watching it. Right. But because, don't you think you like it more because you went through the ordeal? No. Oh, okay. No. What? Uh, all right. No, absolutely. What, absolutely not. Like, that whole idea of whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. It's like, yeah, but I may be stronger, but... It might kill It me. almost killed me. <laughs> that was no fun. Um, no, I remember... 
I remember that evening when I was exhausted and watching this two and a half hour, uh, inc- like film with what 14, 20 shots. Yeah. In all of it. In by the way, the uh, the Cinematheque at Facets, which is yeah. I'm so glad that it existed there. I saw a lot of great stuff. Not the most comfortable place to spend no, two and a half hours. No. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, no, I, I look back at the, on, on that experience and be like, oh, that was, that was awful. I love the movie now, though. Um, I'm just saying, I, you know, no, almost no one is going to drink scotch and like it the first time. But I'm telling you, it's worth it to stick with it and learn to like scotch because it's, it rewards you. Multifold. I'm, by the way, I'm not one of those pretentious drinker people. And, and, people. And that's the thing is like I have no desire to get drunk or even buzzed. The only Hold on, thing. Sorry, I need to correct myself. I shouldn't say pretentious. That was dismissive of me. I'm not a connoisseur. Is all I meant to say. Okay, that's very nice. Because I would to say I would hate for someone to say I'm not one of those pretentious film people, which a lot of people do about me, and I don't like it. Indeed. So I'm sorry I dismissed Scotch connoisseurs. Okay. It's a perfectly worthy pursuit. Absolutely, and okay. so and and it's because because it is seen as this this idea of like a guy holding the scotch and be like, "This is good scotch." And it's like I, I don't know, what, <laughs> uh, it all tastes like shit to me. So it's like I'm drinking uh, turpentine. <laughs> you know, I would want to be. I would. I, my big uh, incentive is looking very distinguished. Um, yeah, and. Uh, Apparently, I my counselor says that I am too concerned with how people view me. So maybe that shouldn't be my uh, reason for doing things. Anyway, did you you didn't need to go to a counselor to hear that, right? Uh, no, <laughs> but it is a running theme. Okay, in uh, in our sessions because uh, it runs deep. Now then, that's neither here nor there. You brought so so you said that I. I challenge myself as a filmmaker, so why don't I challenge myself as an eater? And I said that didn't necessarily that wasn't necessarily true. I can't help what I like and don't like as an eater, whereas intellectually I can I can push myself and intellectually come to understand why this is viewed as a good movie, even if I don't agree with it. And then what I said is Taste is at one of your senses. I can't punch you in the face over and over and say, talk yourself into liking this. <laughs> okay, and in that sense, I feel like emotions are something that a person can't help. Now, what they do with it, they can help. But it's an instinctive thing. It can't be overly intellectualized. If something makes you scared or something makes you, eh, honestly, if something makes you laugh or whatever, you have no, or makes you cry. Like you, you feel like you, I have no control over this. Mm -hmm. You know, how I, what I do with it later, I have control over, but in the moment I can't control how I react. And I think a lot of film people, whether they be critics or otherwise, I think they don't like that. The, the lack of control because film criticism, it's all about what I can explain, what makes sense and what I can understand. And I think a film that appeals – I think what, what's so bad in their mind about a, a film appealing solely to emotion is that if it succeeds, if it fails, I, I can't qualify it, you know? And mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's purely my theory, uh, and I think there are probably plenty of, of film people out there who are not afraid uh, of that sort of thing. But um, – but yeah, I think maybe that's why a film a film that is sentimental and appeals to something more than our intellect or maybe even deeper than our intellect is something that that 
some critics are just like, that's, that's too base, you know? And it's like, well, that's fine. But there have been plenty of films that are almost completely intellectual. And I found myself appreciating them, mm-hmm. but not invested. Well, a good example is Tinker yeah, Tailor Soldier Spy. I don't think, I think I can appreciate them equally in different ways if they're good. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 I felt no emotion towards good night and good luck. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's an almost purely intellectual exercise. Yeah, that I could think. be, yeah. But I, I John Luke Godard, like I mean, weekend is, uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite Godard films. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have a, uh, great emotional effect on me, but it's so intellectually engaging that it's no. just as fun in a different way to watch. Yeah. And it, Orson Welles was not a particularly emotional filmmaker, nor was Stanley Kubrick, but that's mm-hmm. a Kubrick, but yeah, that doesn't uh, keep me from, from loving them. And so, but I think, Loving those doesn't preclude me from loving John Cassavetes, who is pure, raw, unchecked emotion. Uh-huh. You know, and so that's a good yeah. Cassavetes is someone I not would, would not have thought to put on this list, but it's uh, oh, he's as sentimental as you get. Yeah, for good, uh, not for good or ill. It's all I, I think it's all good, but um, like he understands that sentimentality can mean any number of things uh-huh. uh, for characters, yeah. and uh, and he will not shy away from any of it. So check out those films. The films of John Cassavetes. And we will be here at Battleship Retention, uh, which is at battleshipretention.com. If I haven't mentioned the website, I'm pretty sure I have a couple times. Uh, please check it out. Weekly uh, reviews of theatrical uh, releases and uh, DVDs and Blu-rays as well. Some other features such as the movie recommendation thing we talked about this week. There will be a review of David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo hmm. and... Uh, I think a review of Vim Vendor's Pina. I, I mean, I'm saying I think so because I don't. I'm not sure on the release date. Mm-hmm. There were, whenever it comes out, there will definitely be a review. I have it. I've written. I've seen. I've, it's ready to go. I just don't know when it'll. But anyway, there there have been recent reviews of uh, Carnage, which we spoke at length about a, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think any other like major ones. The Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a recent review up there. Um, I reviewed Cedric Kopleish's My Piece of the Pie, which you can uh, get on demand, I think, in most mm. places. Yeah. Um, so anyway, check out BattleshipRetention.com. All kinds of fun stuff there, including a donate button. It would, wouldn't hurt us uh, at all. So um, you can also, of course, listen to the... Uh, the podcast there or subscribe at iTunes or write us a review in iTunes. I haven't said that in a while. Uh, email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash thepretension and Tyler's at twitter.com slash more lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, which you can find at more than one lesson.com or in iTunes. And my other podcast is the weekly television review show previously on at previously on show.com or in iTunes. All right. Well, David, this was a lot of fun talking. I uh, thought so. It's, you know, we've said it before. the uh, The most fun we have, aside from having like a you know a fun guest on or something, mm-hmm. uh, I often have my the most fun when we are talking about something that really has nothing to do with anything, uh, <laughs> and is completely there's no real conclusions. Actually, there's a bit more of a conclusion to this one than most yeah. of our purely academic discussions. But you know uh, why? Because I'm getting. I'm getting a big head. I'm getting pretty sure of myself. Oh, is that how? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to be one of those guys. <laughs> You're planning ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, who's constantly appearing on other podcasts and talking about the state of podcasting oh. and film criticism like I'm a fucking... You're going to talk uh, about the state author- of podcasting? Uh, a th- yeah, I'm going to talk about like I'm an authority because I'm becoming one of those douches. All right. We listen to a lot of comedy podcasts. I think you and I maybe know the type 
the uh, the comedian who's gotten a little too much cred in the alt world and now considers himself an expert on the world of comedy and pontificates at length whenever he's a guest on a podcast. Yes, I'm thinking of someone in particular, and we'll talk about it off mic. No, I don't totally <laughs> remember what you're saying, but uh, who you're talking about. But, uh, but yeah, so... Um yeah, this was a lot of fun. Hopefully everybody uh, enjoyed it. And by all means, we'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, you can comment uh, on the website. Yeah, that, there'll be a post us. for this episode specifically. I mean, look, we've got ways of knowing how many people are, are are checking out the site. But what we don't know is the quality of person who's checking out the site. So post on the articles and reviews and prove to us that you are uh, – or, or you know what? Don't prove to us because we know. Mm-hmm. We know your quality because you're listening to this fucking show. There but prove go. to the haters, right? Yeah. That those who listen to and read Battleship Pretension, high quality people. For the most part. Jerry the, <laughs> Jerry the Sailor, come on. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.